They did. Um, before we get started, um, I want to just take a couple of moments just to do what Amy was talking about and highlight how important these grace groups are, especially as we move into our new building. Uh, we still want to be mobile. And so these grace groups are going to be at a critical part, not only of our church family and our church fellowship, but your development spiritually. Uh, we have a couple of more that are starting, one called um, Welcome Home. It's going to be led by Bailey, Dempsey, and Jeff Howe. They, these, this is a study that pertains to how a biblically-based small group works. Uh, I think this one starts in April, I think, if, that, if I'm not mistaken, like beginning of April. Um, isn't that right? Something like that. Right. And then there's another one for, uh, for, for young adults. I think we're going to look for a cooler name like maybe like cool people or something like that. But for young adults, um, it's actually, well, I didn't know this. This is cool. It's going to be a recap of Pastor Joe's incredibly wonderful, tremendous sermons. That's just, <clears throat> I'm just reading. It just, in Second Peter, uh, Chris Martini and Tommy Kay will be leading that. And so you'll be getting an email about that. If you are, if you are a, a young, I think by young, we mean under what? 55? Because that's, I'm 54. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, that's going to be a great group, and uh, apparently there's going to be, the first gathering is going to be at Rafferty's on April 3rd, right after church, right over there. Uh, then they'll decide where the next ones will take place. Lunch will be paid for. So if you're a young adult and you want to be a part of that group, I think I'm going to be there. I'm 54, so if young is under 55, I'm going to go and get a free lunch. So this let, you know, I'll be there. Um, this one will run for two months. None of these are permanent commitments. We're only asking you to make a couple of month commitments. And then after that, the group will revisit and decide the next steps. These are important. These grace groups are important to the life of our church as we go forward. <clears throat> if you haven't had an opportunity to be a part of a grace group, I want to encourage you over the next couple of months to look for an opportunity to be involved. There's another one that's going to be starting at some point uh, for young uh, people with kids is what we're calling it. People with kids. And I'm excited about that one as well. Um, so we're going to continue with our series, but before that, I just want to remind you, we have one more week in 2 Peter next week, and then we'll start our series on Revelation called Letters from Heaven, um, and I'm excited about that. And what's really been cool is how first, or 2 Peter chapter 3 has been a perfect introductory series of messages into the book of Revelation, and it's just going to be a tremendous time together. I think the timing of it going into the new facility is great, which, by the way, we close on Thursday. So... And, Yes, Thursday. And then on Friday, we have a demo crew ready to start ripping down some of the walls that we need to get ripped down. Then we've got a walkthrough with an architect on the 29th with some team members to figure out exactly. Uh, Jen Gillespie really described it well. It's a big, beautiful Rubik's Cube. And we have no idea where all the pieces are going to fit yet, but there's a lot of work. <clears throat> but we're going to continue with our series on Second Peter today. Uh, I've entitled this message... It's part four of this Returning on Jesus mini-series, Desiring Judgment. Well, that just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Desiring Judgment. Are there things about this world you believe should be different? Things that should change? Things that if there was justice, any justice at all, these things would be wiped away, like things like war, human trafficking, racism and bigotry, violent crime, murder, Rape, and what about maybe even economic injustice, <clears throat> corporate greed, government corruption and evil? What about things like natural disasters that cause so much pain? Things like cancer and COVID. What about other moral issues like abortion, euthanasia, on and on and on? 
The fact is, most people on earth, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, have some sort of vision or hope or passion for what they believe the world should look like. And they also, each one, each person has, frankly, a strong opinion on the solutions. See, the human heart, no matter who your heart is, the human heart naturally longs for all things to be made right. We always have a hope somehow for a better world, a better tomorrow. We hope for that personally, for our family and our community and our country and the world. We long for this perhaps somehow if we keep trying and toiling, humanity will stumble upon a utopia. And so what begins to happen is, as humans, we naturally, no matter who you follow, whether Jesus or something else, you begin to advocate for those issues and solutions that you are the most passionate about. And frankly, children of God, we should be doing that as well as royal priests. And sometimes when you advocate for a position and you do things that to, to try to promote that uh, position and your solutions, sometimes you can really make a real difference. But sadly, even at your greatest success, it's never going to be enough, no matter how hard you try. You'll never have total success. There is, in fact, only one event that will make this world everything anyone could hope it would be. Only one event that will fulfill all human desires for justice, and that's the day of God's judgment. Let's look at the passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. <clears throat> but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it, in it, on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. And he puts an exclamation point. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is a problematic passage kind of graphic. But I think as we take a deep dive into what Peter's really saying into the context, we're going to get a better understanding of what he really means. The history of this passage I've called, is judgment good or bad? So first of all, there was a group that didn't want anything to change in the world. These false teachers that Peter's been talking about had been sowing doubt about whether Jesus would return. They would teach that the world will just continue as it is. There's no judgment and no need to fear it. What do you think would be the motivation for somebody who would say they follow Christ but then teach there's no type of return? What do you think is the motive for that type of theology? Where did they get it from? We know certainly that it wasn't from the teachings of Jesus or the apostles. So why would they, these false teachers become passionate advocates of such a thing as to say Jesus isn't coming back, there's no day of judgment. Why would they think the world would be better off if that never happened? See, to them, judgment posed a significant problem. It was inconvenient. 
It's something that would demand righteousness and priorities and their lifestyles to change, something they had zero interest in doing. They didn't want a healed, restored, purified world. They only wanted one that gave them more opportunities for sensuality, self-gratification, indulgence, and immorality. So to rid themselves of worry about the consequences of potential eternal accountability, they just denied there would ever be any. See, they loved their immoral lifestyle. They were in love with this world, and they had no hope for something more. You know, we can slip into that mindset too sometimes without even realizing it. We become content. We become satisfied with life, and we begin to lose our desire for something more. And we begin to live for this life more than the next, even as followers of Jesus. And before you know it, we lose all eternal priorities of any kind. So that's one group that didn't want to change a thing, but there was a group in this passage that is looking for more. Believers who follow Jesus and his teachings hoped for something far greater than what the world had to offer. They had eternal hopes. They were looking for a return of Jesus. They hoped for a world that was going to be more like the kingdom of heaven than the world that they lived in currently. They desired a world that celebrated faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, stability, godliness, loving community, and love for your fellow man. But the theology of the false teachers was threatening to draw them away from these kingdom desires, especially if Jesus didn't return as they expected him to within the next couple of years after Jerusalem would fall in 70 A.D., See, if there's no return, there's no future judgment, and the world continues just as the way it is, well, then what? Why? What's the point of all this burden of righteousness and following Jesus? What's the point of faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, stability, godliness, loving community, and love for your fellow man if there is no potential accountability? See, Peter wanted them to remember these important things, thus the name of this series. He wanted them to remember important things about the return of Jesus so that they would never lose hope in the promise that Jesus would return. He wanted them to remember what will happen, and he wanted them to remain faithful, watching, waiting, and hastening that day until it came. So that's the history of the passage. Look at the spiritual side of this. I've entitled this, Melted, Dissolved, Burned, and Purged. <laughs> Are you ready? Are you excited about this? See, Peter uses what seems at the very beginning of this passage. I want you to see something, or this section. He uses a very odd word in the middle of this passage referring to judgment. And let's just start there with this odd use of a word and then work our way through. In the heart of this graphic description of the return of Jesus with all the fire and burning and dissolving, he says you need to watch for and hasten Jesus' return. Well, why would we? The Greek word is spudontos, which means to sincerely desire. He says, look, these things are going to happen, the dissolving, the burning. So what you need to do is really watch for and really sincerely desire that. <laughs> okay. And look, I'm not going to spend too much time here on this word. We're going to revisit it later. 
But I want you to see something. Paul actually talks about this idea of a sincere desire for the return of Jesus in the day of the Lord. It's in Romans chapter 8. Let's just read this. For we know the whole creation, get this, we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Peter describes this, this somehow this internal, unspoken, kind of <clears throat> unexplainable desire that we have for justice, for things to be made right. And he says it's not just the world that groans for it, but our hearts as well. This is critical this word and this concept, it's critical if you're going to really understand that this passage isn't really about instilling fear. It's actually a passage, when you understand it in context, is written to inspire hope and anticipation and give us a sincere desire for that day. So, But first, let's look at the fact that there are some really scary words here. I mean, when Jesus returns, we know it will be quick, like a thief, unannounced, and if you read in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 through 5, 3, you can read that later, it describes how he'll catch us up to meet with him in the air and will forever be with him. What an incredible moment that will be for us. The day of the Lord when he returns and takes us with him, meeting Jesus in person to be with him forever. But there is another side of that moment. Some people teach there are two separate moments where he takes his church and then judges. No, there's one. He takes his church and judges. The other side of that day is also going to be unannounced, unexpected, all-consuming, dramatic, and quite traumatic. And here are some descriptions. The first one, puromenoi. It means to be melted by fire for purification, purged of dross. You know what dross is when you're purifying gold and you scrape the stuff off the top. And then there's another word that he uses to describe the return of Jesus. Luo, to loosen, to break things apart, to undo what is tied together and then dissolve those things. That's what the word luo means. To take things that are meshed together, break them apart and dissolve. There's another word. Man, these are harsh. Tekatai, to make something into liquid or to melt it. Yee. And there's another word, kasuo, to burn up, to set fire to. I mean, what is up with this language? I mean, it sounds, frankly, like a nuclear holocaust. Brutal. Painful. Why would anyone sincerely desire that? earth and sky become an inferno? I mean, is Peter really predicting a global furnace? Or is it possible that he is using, as he has many times before in both of his epistles, a graphic metaphor? I mean, he's used metaphors before. Remember with the return of Jesus earlier and a couple weeks ago where he says, a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years? That was a metaphor, and I, and I took you through the Old Testament, and I explained that, and I explained how it is tied to the idea in Lamentations that his mercies are new every morning. 
Remember we went through that? It was an undeniable evidence that what Jesus is really, or what Peter's really talking about is that the Lord's delay of his return is like tender mercies every morning. Is it possible that this, in this passage, is another metaphor? Well, there's a key word here in verse 10 that is actually kind of a, what we call a textual variant, meaning that there are some manuscripts that don't have this word, but older, more reliable New Testament manuscripts, all of them do have this word. And so we know by that that this, this, is, this is most likely a part of the original text. You won't find this word in the King James Bible, but you'll find it in versions like the New, uh, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, which we use here. This word is urethesitai. This word is fantastic. It means to be exposed or discovered. Other texts have this as another word saying just burned up. But the actual word, the Greek word, means that these things will be exposed or discovered. This is critical. See, this is the result of the judgment at Jesus' return. Jesus' return is not destructive. It's expository. It's exposing things, and it's purifying them. And what are the things that will be exposed? Motives, agendas, actions, intentions and schemes of every human or spiritual entity, all of them will be brought to light. Peter says they are exposed and dissolved through fire, and it sounds vengeful. But Peter is using another metaphor. He, as a matter of fact, this is what's so great about Scripture. If you stop and slow down and take a look at lengths within a passage, you can see he used this same exact metaphor in 1 Peter. What was he talking about? The return of Jesus. And he compares it to this smelting process of precious metals. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus. So we see he's already talked about the idea of purifying gold through fire and comparing that to, return, to the return of Jesus. You know, when a goldsmith purifies gold with heat and fire, what happens is the heat, as you... Take the gold, and it's melted, right? He talked about melting in this passage. The gold is melted, and the heat brings impurities of the gold to the top. Those impurities are exposed and loosened up from the gold. They float to the top, and then they are dissolved, or they are removed. And the higher the carat in your gold, the purer the gold is. The problem is, with each carat you add to the gold, the longer exponentially it takes to purify the gold and to expose those impurities and have them loosened and removed and dissolved from the top. When Jesus returns, God's judgment is purifying the world, exposing and dissolving any depravity and all of its impacts. 
This judgment purifies and restores creation, healing the scars and corruption that has been brought to it by, frankly, us, human depravity. But he also not just purifies the physical earth and the physical world, he also purifies our hearts. He's exposing. He's renewing. He's restoring. He's not destroying and burning everything to the ground. This is a metaphor of God purifying as gold is through fire. His judgment is the day everything impure is exposed and removed and everything in creation is made whole again. And that, frankly, even if you don't understand it, it's something that the human heart, all of us, desires. That's why Peter says we should spudentas, sincerely desire and hasten that incredible day, that moment. We should embrace it, not fear it. He's not creating for you the picture of a burning sky. He's creating you the image and the picture of God coming, taking his church and purifying creation. The personal section. I've entitled this Yearning for Justice. This was the sermon preview this week. What are some things in your life you desire more than the return of Jesus? Now, I know many of you saw it and you didn't like it on purpose because <laughs> it's a tough question. It is a tough question, isn't it? You got to stop and really think about it. Are there things that I enjoy in this life more than I hasten and desire the return of Jesus? Sincere desires. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Back to our first series on this, these letters of Peter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There you go, the return of Jesus again. As obedient children, listen, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. <clears throat> Are there things that you spoot on toss, sincerely desire in this life? so much that you yearn for them more than you yearn for the return of Jesus? Do you spudontas the passions of your former ignorance? Do you return to them far too often? Sensuality, addiction, revenge. Do you spudontas these more than that day? And is it possible that we also spoot on toss, sincerely desire good things more than the return of Jesus? Financial success, reputation, health. And don't take this the wrong way. Not that you can't desire these, you can. But do we desire our families more than the return of Jesus? See, the problem that we have and the struggle, the challenge that we must always remember is that when we desire other things so much that we begin to become disinterested in the kingdom of heaven. Even today, followers of Jesus are continually lured into neglecting the kingdom of God that's right here and right now. We become so distracted by other sincere desires, we become just as obsessed with the world as anyone else. Financially, Certainly politically, socially, intellectually. 
We develop daily habits that cause us to live as though Jesus is never even going to return. Not necessarily bad habits that are really immoral, but we almost live with an out-of-sight, out-of-mind perspective on that day. And that's not good because there's a job for us. We have to keep working and waiting. He says, as you look for the day, sincerely desire it. Look, every person in the world is dissatisfied with society or the world in one way or another. Every human knows that this world that we live in, politically, naturally, socially, we all know it needs an absolutely massive overhaul, don't we? Maybe you are passionate about the fact that this world needs an overhaul because of economic inequality. Maybe you believe the world needs to be overhauled because of its cultural immorality. Maybe you believe this world needs to be overhauled because you are tired of government corruption or war or violence or racism or bigotry. Look, most can't explain it. But the fact is, we all, spudontas, sincerely desire evil to be exposed and removed. The problem is most people can't admit that that desire is not earthly, it's actually spiritual. Because if you admit that it's spiritual, then you have to deal with another problem, which is, I need to trust Jesus. So here's what happens. As people, we get passionate about believing the world needs an overhaul in one or more of these areas, and so we try to make a difference. We begin advocating for our view of justice through politics, protests, Charity, volunteering. But the fact is, it's sad, but no economic system, no political ideology, or any social justice movement can expose and remove evil from this world. Why? Because none of those things can cure the sickness for why the world is broken to begin with. And what is that sickness? Our depravity, our need to be purified. But now listen, don't get me wrong, as followers of Jesus, as we wait for spiritual justice, we should be inspired to work differently than the world does. We are active with all those things I talked about, but we are doing it in step as royal priests through proclamation, through integrity, and through industry. We are in step with the priorities of the kingdom of God that is right here and right now, as Jesus said many times. And our sincere desire for that day will be manifested by how? How did Peter describe it? It was really easy, right? Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, stability, godliness, loving community, and love for our fellow man. And we also recognize even our great... This is, this is hard, but think about this. Even our greatest kingdom successes are just part of a continual struggle, a constant battle. Because here's what happens. Even as we work for the kingdom and we hasten that day and we look forward to it, the wave of impurities in this world driven by human depravity always return like a smelly tide seeking to erode any kingdom work. The only permanent Perfect solution to depravity, to evil, is when our Jesus returns and exposes all of it and then purifies us from it and then dissolves it. The only event 
the only movement, the only person that can set this world right is Jesus when he comes to get us. And yes, listen, that day will be sudden, it will be dramatic, it will be global, it will be intense, and for some, it will be catastrophic. I'm not going to hide that. But those in Christ, this day of purification isn't one to fear. It's the core to our hope. It's the moment that we are actually yearning for. And that's why judgment can be a comfort. It provides God's children with a reason that we are so committed to our kingdom work now. It gives us a purpose for daily kingdom living. A sincere desire for that day transforms our earthly priorities into those of people inspired to live and work as if it is coming tomorrow. It's the day the whole earth will be finally, all of it, not just God's children, all of it will be filled with faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, stability, godliness, loving community, and love for one another. It is the day our redemption is completed, the moment our hearts and minds are also made pure as well. It's the day you won't have to struggle with your thought life ever again. It's the day this world will be made whole again. Our struggle with depravity will be over. We will be perfect in Christ. A world where righteousness is treasured, not disdained. What a day. What a sudden, dramatic, consuming moment it will be. Therefore, because of all this, we can spoon on toss, sincerely desire the return of Jesus and the purifying judgment that comes with it. And so, through our sincere desire, we work and we wait. Each morning, counting his fresh mercies as we live with this spudentas, this sincere desire for his return so that he will finish his work in us. He that began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So, what should this sincere desire for Jesus' return in judgment, what, did it, what should it look like? What would be, would you say, its priorities? its passions, its choices. What type of people should we be? What kind of lives should we be living if we are watching and working until that day? Well, lucky for you, that's our topic next week. <laughs> As we begin to close out this series on 2 Peter and begin our study in Revelation, this week and next week will be a perfect introduction, won't it? Until then, we will work and we will wait because we are inspired by our sincere desire for Jesus to come and purify not just the world, but man, we need it too, don't we? Heavenly Dad, we do desire your, your return. <clears throat> we also admit there's a lot of things in this life that are screaming for us to desire them more. Lord, we don't want 
those things to overshadow our desire for your return. We want to have a sincere desire to see you come and set things right, to return the world the way it should be. <clears throat> Empty our hearts and minds from the things that distract us from that. Because it is a constant daily struggle. So we will work and we will wait. But until then, we will be fully engaged in kingdom work as we prepare for the moment that you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Go out this week and work and wait. We'll see you next Sunday.